I always love starting off a uh, Halloween show with the monster scene. Mark, what am I doing right now? You're doing some sort of a uh, dance that I believe is probably monsters related. It's not monsters related. It's just you know. Remember when they 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 did a, a pilot for a uh, monsters reboot called Mockingbird Lane? Why don't you swallow the, thing the gum? With Eddie, with, swallow with, the gum. Okay? <laughs> get me, like give me something five cal- No, I'm not. You're gonna swallow the gum. No, I'm not gonna swallow my gum. Okay. Are you kidding you me? Really, well, who you cares? know that dust your digestive tract? It does it's nothing. Horrible. It's get, just get, gum. You you eat way way worse than a piece of gum. No, I don't. No, I don't. Right. Give me, keep, give me keep, uh, don't, Okay, fine. Yeah. I'll get so, you a napkin. Don't stop recording. Thank you. All right, so we are, uh, yes, this is the, uh, the Halloween show. And uh, what a wonderful treat we've got. Um, we, we have related to a uh, documentary that our good friend Ray Green uh, made recently, which is out now on DVD. Uh, thank you. We have an interview with Ray Green. And, of course, those who've listened to the... Uh, podcast for any period of time know that uh, Ray Green and I made a documentary, gosh, it's been over a decade now, uh, called uh, Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies, History of Exploitation Films in the, in the 50s and 60s. And what grew out of that, one of the figures we interviewed as kind of a, uh, as sort of a preparatory figure was uh, Myla Nurmi, who of course is and was Vampira. And uh, Myla passed away some years ago. But at the time we interviewed her, and most of the people we, we interviewed in the documentary have passed on, but at the time we interviewed her, Ray, um, that kind of set in motion some things. It uh, led to Ray actually finally making a documentary entirely about her. And uh, it's a really interesting story, and it's a great doc. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. Mark was, of course, in, involved in the uh, in all the stages of, you know, seeing many different I bought cuts. A bl- I bought a brand new PlayStation 3 thanks to that doc. <laughs> no, because Ray was going to screen the doc for you and me and yep. Ray and Tim, right? Our friend Tim Cockshell yep. here at my, at my place. And, like, the day before he was going to come over, I was noticing that my PlayStation 3 was, like, a little bit wonky. It was, an old, it was one of the older models. Yep. So I decided that I didn't want to embarrass myself. I didn't want to disappoint Ray. So I went to the store and I spent whatever it was, 400 bucks on a brand new PlayStation 3 just to ensure that the screening of Ray's doc, Vampire and Me, would go off without a hitch. You're such and, a pro. And it did. You're and he name-checked me in the credits. He did indeed. He did? Yep. Awesome. I mean, well, basically, uh, the interview took place at Ray's. Uh, Ray is also a, a Lafka colleague of ours, former editor of ours from uh, Box Office Magazine days. And uh, Ray uh, teaches a class at uh, LMU, Loyola Marymount University. And uh, he screened his film uh, for the class the other day. And I went down and conducted an interview with him in front of the class. So that's, the, uh, that's essentially what you will be hearing later on. Nice little treat. Some very interesting tidbits. Which means that we should get to DVDs now. now. So we can top off the show with that little treat. So... Now, this uh, is a Halloween show, which means Wade will do nothing but talk about really, really buyable or rentable Halloween movies. Right, right Wade? Right, yeah, Wade? Yeah, well, right, you know, Wade? we've saved up a lot of, uh, of horror films that have been released on DVD uh, and Blu-ray of late, uh, specifically for this show. And no, we have not watched all of them, because we would be serial killers if we had done that to ourselves. But, uh, you know, we'll, we've, we've done our due diligence and, uh, to the best that we can, and we'll do our best to kind of give you an overview of all of this just hor- horrific bloodletting that has been pumped out on, uh, on three-and-a-half-inch discs lately. Um, for starters, there's, there's only one multi-set here, one of these bargain sets, and I was surprised by that because normally they send, put out tons of these things around this time of year. But 
Only, only one of these came out. This is from music video uh, distributors. MVD is how they are known now. And they've got a killer four-pack of four uh, low-budget horror films, all of which are perfectly acceptable for, for genre fans. Uh, if you want to have kind of a marathon, a, you know, an inexpensive marathon, and you're having a party, and you, know, you don't really want to show a classic, but you just want to have something spooky going on in the background, this is great. Just pick this up, and it'll, it'll go for hours and hours and hours, and there'll be enough you know, hor horrific splatter going on in the background that it'll make your guests feel right at home on the holiday. Uh, this includes uh, The Day of the Dead, uh, Jezebeth, Carnage, The Legend of Quilt Face, and Hell Week, Grindhouse Edition. Carnage, The Legend of Quilt Face is the one that I really, I, I, I had to look at it. I was like, I, what's qu Quilt Face? This is, this is our new, we've, we've had Leatherface and Pinhead, now we have Quilt Face. Uh, this is, this, all of these are, uh, you know, these all have uh, overseas origins, shall I say. And uh, the guy who directed this, Massili, Massili, Massimiliano Cerci, mutilated his name. Uh, clearly, this guy has like giallo in his blood. The whole thing takes place in Nevada, but uh, it, you know, let's let's just say Quilt Face, not as terrifying as I thought he would be, um, but you know, not bad. I, I I wouldn't mind. Yeah. So whatever. Anyway, that's your killer four pack. Four full-length horror films from uh, MVD. All right, we have a couple from Mario Bava. Mario Bava, of course, a uh, very famous uh, Italian director and uh, screenwriter. He was uh, big with the slasher films. And uh, two of his best films, actually, although I do like Kill Baby Kill, but uh, two of his best films are on a, a brand-new Kino Blu-ray. This, uh, this is Black Sabbath and Black Sunday. Uh, Black Sabbath uh, was probably his most famous film, and he followed up with the color film... Um, uh, Black Sunday, you know, if you like those uh, Italian horror films, like you know, giallo type films, I find these films really cheesy. But Mario Bava definitely has his place in um, in cinema history. Kino always does a good job historically with these films, and this is the um, the U.S. release version. It was the version that was released in uh, in his native Italy, and then when the films came to market uh, via American International Pictures, they retooled it and uh, they redubbed it, and uh, they were given new musical scores, and that's what you got here. So this is Black Sabbath and Black Sunday, both from uh, the 1960s, from 1960 to 1963. And we have on DVD, for some reason, we have Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched, who occasionally did something dramatic, and she, one of them, yeah. She either won an Emmy for this or was nominated. I can't remember. I forgot about that. Well, I have an interesting, uh, uh, I have an interesting piece of, uh, tidbit about Elizabeth Montgomery, which is that she was related to Lizzie Borden. Oh. Elizabeth Montgomery was related to Lizzie Borden. They were like, like, like. Six cousins or seventh cousins or something. And the film is, of course, the TV production, The Legend of Lizzie Borden. And if you don't know the song, you're probably a millennial because everybody knows the song, Lizzie Borden, right? She like, uh, how's the song go? Uh, sing a song of sixpence, or is that a different one? Sing a song of six, uh, a pocket full of rye, whatever it is. No, really? that, I guess that's not that's not the Lizzie that's Borden song, it. is it? No. Oh, anyway, well, she grabbed an axe and murdered a bunch of people and her her parents among them and. Anyway. Except for a bunch of Golden Globes, uh, including Best TV Movie. And uh, so it definitely caused a splash at the time, especially because uh, Montgomery was known mostly as the nose-twitching Witch. Witched. Yeah. Uh, now we have a bunch of, like, uh, these are, I'm going to give you really quickly four super lame, uh, put it on at the party and just let it go and then occasionally stare at it, uh, DVDs. One is called uh, The Dead and the Damned 2, which ironically enough is the sequel to The Dead and the Damned 3. 
See, they're working backwards is what they're doing <laughs> later. It's very strange. Anyway. Um, is, that, is that the horror film equivalent of uh, back ma backward masking? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? Back masking? I don't get it. Uh, anyway, so The Dead and the Damned uh, 2. This is a ridiculous bunch of uh, zombie, you know, gunslingers, uh, whatever. The Haunting at Preston Castle, which uh, it, it always gets me. I always find it funny when these things say inspired by true events. Which mm -hmm. means that somewhere in the world there was a castle, <laughs> and uh, it might have been called Preston Castle. We're not sure. Otherwise, it was completely made up. I can't remember the. There was a film I reviewed on Film Week, probably like last week, because I can't remember it. I can never remember the last stuff I saw. Uh, no, this is about a month or two ago. There was something we reviewed that said inspired by true events. There was a, it was a scary film. I can't remember a thing about it. Those things go right out of my head. But I, I looked it up. I was like, there's no way. There's just no way. And I looked up what the true events were that were inspired. And apparently the writers were reading about something. And they decided, oh, let's make a movie up based on the something. So they, they literally, the whole thing is fictitious. It would be like saying, yeah, I read a movie about gambling. And um, I thought, all right, I'll, I'll write Ocean's Eleven. And then, uh, you know, Ocean, oh, I, I read, or I read a movie about a guy who was a criminal. So I think I'll, uh, I'll just invent a movie about a guy who's similar to that criminal. And then you say, Ocean's Eleven, yeah, it's based on true events. No, it isn't. No, it's not. Stop I, it. I always look at that warily. Anyway, uh, this stars a bunch of no-name actors, and uh, they hang out at, a, at an abandoned uh, correctional facility. And what do you expect? Lots and lots of horrible, stupid, cheesy gore. Um, Chemical <laughs> Peel is a... Uh, that's is, a great title. Chemical you got to admit. You know... you got to admit that's a really great title for a horror film. But you, Chemical Peel. But there, there's something about the something about the setup that almost makes it feel like a Stephen King book. It's about this. Uh, there's a there's a uh, in the woods. There's a train accident, and like this chemical reaction, you know, leads to this this chemical that floats over yeah. the town and affects all the people. And it kind of feels like a Stephen King situation, but it's really just a stupid, bloody, lame, undistinctive mm -hmm. sort of uh, horror film. So I would pass on uh, chemical. Now here's here's what I love about Chemical Peel. The the, the just to, just to underline this uh, before you get to that Chemical Peel, the picture on the on the artwork, the artwork is is what 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 is that picture? Uh, it looks like a guy in a uh, some sort of hazmat. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. And then we have something that I'm going to be talking about momentarily, which is also guy in a hazmat thing. Wow. Now I say this just because of the Ebola scare, uh, <laughs> because. Suddenly, this is our new thing, right? It's like uh, these, these, these hazmat gas masks are the new thing in horror films because they define our fear of now diseases. I don't, think they went, I don't think they went and redesigned the cover art just for... No, 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 I don't either. But I think, that, I think it's in the zeitgeist. I think people... I think the thing that we are really afraid of now, it's not monsters, it's not aliens or whatever. I mean, I think there's a genuine fear now that the world is creating diseases and illnesses and flus and SARS and Ebola and who knows what it is or where it's going to come from. And that one of these days, because we've all seen too many movies like, you know, the recent Planet of the Apes and, and all the recent... Uh, what I was know. This, what was like, this? I kept thinking of Planet of the Apes when this whole thing was happening. Right, and the, the map at the beginning. Because there's a few of them that have right. the map. Doesn't the Soderbergh film have the map uh, well, as well? Contagion. That had the map going too, didn't it? Uh, Where it starts as like a little blip and then a right. blip and then next thing you know it's just out. like the whole world is just covered. Love it. And it's just wiped out humanity. And that's what we're afraid of. We're afraid that we're going to get that plague, that disease, and that you know a couple of people are going to get on some planes and sneeze, and and it's all over. Well, you know what? <laughs> if, if, if it happens to me, I just want to go fast. That's all I yeah. care about. Anyway, finally we have the Devil Incarnate, which is also not very uh, good. Mainly because it's not very scary. Um, some decent makeup effects. It's um, about this couple on their honeymoon, and they're driving to Miami, 
And on their way, they stop to visit a tarot card reader, and it all freaks out after that. Oh, my God. Oh, Lots no. of shaky cam. Shaky cam everywhere. Anyway, uh, not that scary. And um, I just think there's no real reason to uh, watch this. Directed by L. Gustavo Cooper, who I don't know who that is. I, I don't know who any of these directors are. All right, so uh, I've got a bunch of these. Do we have any good Halloween movies we can oh, we talk do. about? Oh, we do. Oh, we do. Yeah, we're, we're, sure. we're, 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 uh, we're going to burn through uh, this stuff first. You know, because this is the, uh, the kind of sort of generic-y stuff that people might want to just get cheap, throw on a party, whatever. And there's some interesting stuff in here we're, we're going to get to momentarily. Um, Found is the one that I was talking about just a second ago with the other uh, guy in the hazmat, except in, in, you know, chemical peel, the guy's in a hazmat outfit and he's holding a gun. This one, he's in a hazmat mask, he's topless, and he's holding uh, what appears to be a woman's head in his hands. You only see the scalp. Ew. Uh, this is part of the uh, macabre line from Accelerator. And uh, I always love the, the, uh, the taglines on these. Sometimes the taglines are better than the movies because they think up the taglines before they think up the movies. This is called found and then period. You have to, don't miss the period. Found, period. It's like Oliver, exclamation point. Got to always have the punctuation in these things. Found, period. Uh, here, here, <laughs> this is the, my favorite tagline. Mark, you ready for this? I am. Marty loved horror movies, dot, 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 until his life turned into one. Yeah, that's lame. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so uh, Mar- why are these guys always named Marty? They're never named like Buck. It's always, a, it's always a name that you've seen in something like Back to the Future. Okay. So Marty's a fifth grader, and uh, he, 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 you know, he's picked on, bullies hate him, uh, yada, yada, yada. And uh, the, the, the twist here is a bit of one like, uh, like on the Serial Killer TV show. The, uh, serial Killer uh, Dexter. Thank you. Uh, his, yes, I had the right answer. You did. Well, basically because his brother's a serial killer. Oh, no. Well, you can kind of, you know, not that that's all that new because it kind of all the way goes back to Halloween, right? I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, her brother is a serial killer. The, the, you know, I have a serial killer in the family thing is not all that novel. It's been around for a few decades. Uh, but, you know, the, this guy, Scott Shermer, who co-wrote this and, uh, and directed it based on a novel, uh, does not do a bad job. It's actually a better film than the, uh, than the uh, uh, artwork and the whole thing would suggest. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not going to rock the horror world, but it's not bad. Uh, a thing called Grave Halloween <laughs> is even better. I, you, you almost have to pick this up just for the uh, just for the artwork and the tagline on this one too. It's got a woman whose face you can't see in an, in a nighty in a dark forest, vaguely illuminated. Uh, there's a, a noose in the foreground, and the title of the movie is Grave Halloween. Clearly, design, this is not going to sell after this next couple of weeks. No one survives in the suicide forest. The su- not the suicide forest. I was looking for the Black Forest. Why? Uh, anyway, this is, uh, this is an American independent horror film, but it, uh, it takes place in a Japanese forest because, you know, J-horror is a big deal, so we've got to try to kind of blend J-horror and all this stuff. Anyway, uh, and uh, so this, this kind of splits the difference a little bit between American horror and Japanese horror. And uh, look, it, it, you know, it, you even have a little bit of the... Uh, you know, Blair Witch Project kind of going on here. You got a documentary crew, and you got a, a horrific forest, and you've got you know exchange student, and you can find kind of fill in the blanks. It's just don't stay away from that forest. 
A Deal with the Devil is the uh, background story of uh, Devil's Deal, which tries to look like a horror western. I love this because this also, like the last one, Mark, what's hanging in the, what's in the artwork? It's a noose. I can't, I, I can't, I, I, I have my glasses on. <laughs> I still can't this, like, has a fan, this has like a phantom guy in a, in a Wild West scenario, you know, two guns. It's like, it's like if the mummy were dressed as uh, Wyatt Earp. Anyway, and in the background, there's a noose. <laughs> this is, I love all of these. The motifs, just, they're all the same. There's a noose hanging there. It's like, no, not a noose. The devil hangs people? All right, no one cares. Okay, anyway, this day, on. it's, it, it basically, it's, a, it's like a horror western, uh, you know, uh, a town that made a deal with the devil. And um, before I unleash Mark on the next one, uh, this is not bad. I, I always like a good werewolf movie. Uh, werewolves aren't considered that scary anymore, so I applaud anyone who wants to kind of take a new spin on the genre. Uh, director B.C. Furtney, who also wrote it, gives it a good shot. In Werewolf Rising, uh, this basically the you know new werewolf movies always try to sort of improve on old werewolf movies by reinventing the look and the whole style of the werewolf. There's not much else you can do because ultimately they're hairy and they have teeth and they they rip people's throats out and that's pretty much what they do. Uh, but this one, uh, the the this whole newfangled werewolf design, not bad. If you're a werewolf fan, go for it. Uh, the plot it all takes place in the backwoods of Arkansas. You know, they, don't they all? They do. Now, speaking of werewolves, we have a werewolf uh, movie that is, uh, has a very funny title, and that's where it ends. From the good <laughs> folks at Wild Eye, we have President Wolfman. <laughs> yeah! And uh, President Wolfman is about a uh, guy named uh, John Wolfman, and uh, he's in politics. So, <laughs> this is one of those movies where the inspiration ended with the title. Yeah. I don't see it. There's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, political insight or in-jokes or anything like that. It's just, uh, although the tagline is hell to the teeth. And you really can't, uh, you can't beat hell to the teeth. Anyway, supposedly this thing was made entirely from recycled stock and, do- and public domain footage. That was sort of uh, given a new script and scored and revoiced. I always so, enjoy it when they do that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of funny stuff. But the thing is that if you do that, then you can then you really are then you can write lines, rewrite lines. You know, if a joke doesn't work, you know, when 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 you shoot something, it's harder to you know rewrite it and reshoot it. You've already shot it. I mean, how much ADR can you do? You can't do an you can't ADR a whole film. No, but here you could. You could. You know, why not? No one's really expecting much in the way of uh, sync sound. Go so for if it. a joke doesn't work, rewrite the joke till it's funnier. Here they didn't do Absolutely. that. They just pretty much cranked out President Wolfman, and uh, it really was not that funny. Um, Grace the Possession, uh, we have two that are sort of into like the, uh, you know, the, the, the damsel in distress bondage uh, d- uh, subgenre. One is, the, uh, one is of the non-lesbian type, and the other one, which I'll be renting and watching, which I didn't quite get a chance to watch, is of the lesbian type. Um, <laughs> one is called uh, Grace the Possession. It's about this uh, college girl, and she's, uh, she goes home to her, uh, her grandmother, who's very mean. The grandmother's played by Lynn Shea, who you might remember from um, uh, When Harry Met Sally and Dumb and Dumber. And uh, she's a crazy grandmother, so all sorts of crazy stuff happens to this poor virginal girl uh, in Grace to Possession. I would pass on that. Also straight to video is Blood Soaked, which I did uh, uh, not see all of, but uh, it does include a college girl who winds up in an uh, experimental lesbian affair with another woman, and then they wind up being kidnapped. Uh-huh. So there's lots of uh, kidnapping and uh, bondage and, uh, and uh, Nazi, Nazi insignias, and it's just really ridiculous stuff. <laughs> so, you know, look, it's from the people at Wild Eye, so this is kind of the stuff they do, but um, you can do a lot better than Blood Soaked. No end to the werewolf stuff. We are always trying to reinvent it, and uh, this one is called Weir. W-E-R. The Legend Reborn. 
the director of this film has done a few of these things, and uh, the the idea here is basically that there's an attorney, there's a guy who's been arrested for murdering a family, and his attorney, uh, almost too late, figures out, holy cow, I know what have I done? Uh, when she gets him off, uh, you know, I took a, a glimpse at this one. Seems to be decent. I I would say uh, Werewolf Rising is the is the more interesting uh, werewolf film, but. You know, hey, you got a whole whole Halloween evening to spend with people. You can pile on as much as you want. And speaking of piling on, um, uh, Varsity Blood really kind of piles it on. Uh, that's another one of my, my favorite taglines. The artwork on the cover of this is basically a bunch of football players and cheerleaders all uh, spiked together, piled on top of a, a giant spear like you would with you know receipts on a little spike on your desk. And then a football, a deflated football piled on on top of it. <laughs> and Mark, read the tagline. What are we into taglines this week? <laughs> Funny. School's out forever. <laughs> That's a great way. <laughs> only, the best for our, only the best for our listeners. <laughs> I could read, honestly, I could read horror film taglines forever. It, it just, uh, AFM's coming up. You know, they denied me for a press badge. They did? They denied me for a press badge at AFM. You're kidding. I, I, Since I, when? I dropped the laugh, laugh good, you know, thing, which should be enough to get you into AFM. And, and then I dropped my, uh, my outlet, which is, you know, not much of an outlet, but it's, it's an outlet, which, of course, I had no business writing for and wouldn't write any reviews for. But still, I wanted to go see free movies at AFM. They turned me down. That's bizarre. That they, they approved you, right? They gave you a badge. Yeah, yeah. I've never been turned down for AFM. Even when you had, like... Even like when I've never gone, <laughs> I mean it's. Bizarre. They turned me. They turned me the f down. I I am not wow. going to AFM this year. That's sad. I'll, I'll I'll see what I can. I'll see if I can pull up. You're pull not going to do that. I can pull some strings. You're not going to pull strings. I can pull some strings. Okay, I'll hold you to that. Yeah. Don't don't just say that for the no, benefit no, no. of the listeners. No, no, no. Seriously, seriously. Let me let me know if I can pull some strings. Yes, I'm letting you know you can pull You're, some strings. Okay. Well, when's well, AFM? That. AFM is November. Uh, yes. It's, Here, it's, okay. It's, okay. I'm I'm going to say no to pulling strings. I'll tell you why. Why? Because I'm going to New York for Thanksgiving. Right. LAFCA votes on uh, December 7th, Day yes, of Infamy. Correct. Which means that between now and December 7th, right? Right. When you, and you, you have to remove the five days I'm in New York for Thanksgiving. Right. How many movies are we going to have to watch? Uh, 816,000? Something like that. So yeah. AFM is just not going to happen. Well, then me. that's also, you know, we're also going to have our, uh, our holiday show right before you depart for Thanksgiving. We should point that out. And, and by way of plugging a few things, uh, we will have a show next week. We will not have a show the following week. What? Well, because of, it, because of the whole AFM thing and because uh, of uh, I'm on the radio on one of those you're weeks. You're not and on the radio. You're making that up. Anyway, so... Uh, By the way, I saw Love is Strange. I, they, they, they sent the screener for Love yes. is Strange, the yes. Sony Pictures Classics. Mm-hmm. Did you, have you seen it? Yes. It's uh, very good. It is very good. It's, very, it's a very sweet, e- it's intimately observed relationship movie. Even though I, I, you, you get the feeling that, that both of them are uh, competing with each other for who's going to uh, uh, get an Oscar nomination. Really, you got that feeling? Yeah, I got that feeling. I mean, I, it's it not doesn't make it not good, but it's. It, Oops, sorry. Mark's drinking a that snapple. Was he snapple. was drinking a diet snapple. He was trying to keep it on the low, and uh, yeah, I blew that. Yeah. Uh, they're both good. Alfred Molina and um, John Lithgow. Very yep. good. Yep. Love is strange. Check it out. I also quite liked Birdman. Uh, Check it out, Birdman. Yes. I also quite liked uh, the theory of everything very much. I, very, I know you much. did. You said that the other day at the LAFCA meeting, after sure. the LAFCA meeting. Yep. Uh, did you see Birdman yet? I have not seen Birdman yet. What is yet. wrong with it? It's so good. I, I, I'll, oh, I'll get to it's it. It's the Birdmaniest. I'll catch up. Anyway, so uh, back to Varsity Blood real quickly. So uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, somebody's got, uh, you know, wants to murder all the football, leader, the football players and the cheerleaders. And uh, after, it, it all takes place after the big Halloween game. 
Because everybody knows they have a big Halloween game every year, right? No, I guess not. So anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a, there's a mascot who's got a bow and arrow and all these other weaponry. And it's like, you know, it, it just, it gets, it, it's a slasher film. It gets hilariously uh, gory. And I, it, you know, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I would not recommend it. It's just, it is what it is. Uh, and then we also have the, uh, we have Delivery, the Beast Within. Not every child is a blessing. Really? A movie about a horrific baby? I've never heard of such a thing before. Neither have I. Neither have I. Keep talking. He has his father's eyes. Uh, ever since Rosemary's Baby, and of course, uh, it, it, some years later, It's Alive. Uh, this oh, is... I loved It's Alive. <laughs> that was one of my favorites of that era. <laughs> kind of so ever since those two, this has become a genre unto itself, uh, a kind of a thing. And naturally, you know, this has kind of a modern twist on it. You've got a couple who's on a reality show because they're going to be new parents. And uh, what better way to just freak people out than have a, a subject of a reality show be, uh, you know, subject of some kind of demonic child possession. Uh, so anyway, it's, uh, it's all right. It's low budget. Uh, but, it, 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 you know, it, it pulls all the necessary strings and does what it's supposed to do. And then the Paranormal Diaries, uh, Clop Hill. This is the Paranormal Diaries has just gone on and on and on, and I guess for good reason. I guess there's uh, it's it's got a respectable following. So in this case, the uh, the story takes us to um, this uh, this location, and they they always they do this is also based on the uh, on true events, right? So you have to wonder what's the deal here. No, the uh, the ruins of a church uh, at Clop Hill that dates back to all kinds of satanic stuff from the time of the Black Death, and um, you, it, it's it, let's just say um, I don't buy it, but whatever. It, it, you know, there's uh, yes, yes, ma'am. There's, it makes you think. I'll put it that way. It does make you think. I don't entirely buy it, but there are a few elements to this story that make me go, I think I'd like to research that a little bit more. You know what, uh, you know what else I think? What do you think? I think that found footage movies need to go away forever. They kind of do. I don't care how cheap they done. are. I'm done with them. I don't care how cheap they are. Forget it. Now, uh, Jack Thomas Smith gives us Infliction, which, uh, by the way, he uh, is not a found footage film. He has rechristened this and uh, assembled Footage film. Oh, I see, I see. So it's, it's an a, assembled footage film. It's a subgenre of the thing. About a, a murder spree in North Carolina in 2011. And uh, I don't know what to say about these movies. I'm really tired of them. I, I think uh, not that he doesn't have the occasional flair uh, for composition and uh, for scares. He doesn't give us any cheap scares necessarily. He, he doesn't do like the whole, you know, you know, character who's slinking down the hallway and the cat jumps out and gives you the fake boo before the real boo. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't do any of that stuff, which I kind of appreciate, but ultimately I think that uh, I, I, if this guy wants to have any career directing, he's got he's to just not just deal in, in, in like found footage movies because it's over. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather see this guy graduate to zombie films at this point. So Infliction has a couple good moments, um, but it is, it's pretty much just another one of those found footage movies. And uh, there you go. There are other ones out there that are better. All right, people who've listened long enough, we've got a couple of giveaways. What? Giveaways? Yes, we do. We've got two giveaways. Now, these aren't necessarily Halloween-y type films, but we wanted to have something special for Halloween. So we've got a couple of giveaways, uh, both of them courtesy of uh, some uh, the good people who furnish us uh, titles from Image and from Arc Entertainment. And uh, the films are Misfire and Autumn Blood, Season of Vengeance, Autumn Blood. 
which includes a hilarious performance by Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare just doesn't even try anymore. He's awesome. He, he, just, he, he's just, I, I can't imagine sitting and he having He just a, walks into movies with his accent that you can't place with any particular country or continent anymore, and he just says weird things and acts weird. I cannot imagine Usually sitting with a strange hairstyle. and having a beer with Peter Stormare. That must be just the most surreal experience. I was, on, I was on the set with Peter Stormare once. Did I ever tell you that? Uh, uh, wait, wait. What, what's that sound I just heard? <laughs> oh, that, oh, is oh. Is that name dropping? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Wait, tell us. No, it was, it was for most of the Vin Vendors film, Million Dollar Hotel, which, you know, at the time, that was my wife was, was, uh, was working on the film, and a lot of our friends were working on the film. So they were shooting downtown L.A., and I, I was on the set. I was actually at the, also at the rap party for that thing. That was surreal. Uh, anyway, the uh, no Peter Stormare just was just being weird on set. I mean, he was supposed to be weird. He was a weird character. Everybody was weird in that movie. The whole concept was weird, but it was very strange. Wait, you know, you know what's strange? The fact that we have about fifteen minutes left okay. before we get to Ray Green. Yep. All right. Uh, to stop him, they'll have to kill him. So Gary Daniels, who is a pretty uh, good martial artist, uh, has become kind of a more of an action film guy after he made a whole bunch of uh, kind of low-budget martial arts things. He's a British guy, you know, kickboxer and all that stuff. Uh, anyway, he stars in uh, Misfire. They started the war. He's going to finish it. The, the taglines are just great this week. I love them. Anyway, he's a, D, he's a DEA agent who's uh, taken on the drug cartels. That's pretty much it. And uh, there's a few other little twists and turns there, but we're giving away three of these. So, uh, you know, if you're a Gary Daniels fan, you want to see a pretty good uh, DEA, like, you know, lone man on a mission, Dirty Harry type deal, Misfire is a good film to watch. Go ahead and send us an email to gods at digigods.com. Gods at digigods.com. Put Misfire in the subject line along with your name and address in the body of the message. And uh, we are going to choose a winner. Uh, as long as we get it, uh, no later than uh, the, it should be time and date stamped on October 24th. So time and date stamped on October 24th. We'll pick a winner. We'll send three of those out. We'll let you know immediately. And uh, you'll be a happy winner for uh, of Misfire. The other film with Peter Stormare is Autumn Blood. Uh, a couple of kids. They've uh, lost their parents. One of them isn't talking because Peter Stormare killed, uh, you know, he witnessed the murder of their father by uh, 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 Peter Stormare, who plays the crazy mayor. Anyway, uh, and they're just living off the land in the mountains until they have a run-in with some crazy hunters. And uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, I want to say The Hills Have Eyes or uh, Deliverance in Reverse in a way. Uh, but anyway, maybe most dangerous game. You know, that's that. You, you know, most dangerous game, right? Yeah. Famous story, right? Rory, yes. Rory Calhoun hunting Gilligan. That's okay. Anyway, I have no comment on that. <laughs> you remember that Rory Calhoun? He went to the island because he, he wanted to hunt, you know, big game, and then he you know, decided, Ray Green is waiting it? for us to talk about. Fine, him. fine. I'm gonna okay. keep saying that until you actually. I will. Get to it. So, Autumn Blood uh, with uh, Sophia Lowe, Peter Stormare, and Gustav Skarsgård. Uh, we, if we get, uh, go ahead and send us an email with uh, Autumn A U T U M N. Please spell it correctly, Autumn, so that our, our filters work correctly. A U T U M N. Put Autumn in the uh, in the subject line. Put your name and address in the body of the message, and uh, also if it is uh, time and date stamped by October twenty fourth. We will pick three people to win a free copy of Autumn Blood. A um, couple of box sets before we, uh, we plow through the final run of these. 
uh, one of which is the complete Halloween box set. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Wanted to give it a little more attention this week. The complete Halloween collection on Blu-ray, 15 discs. Uh, this is great. And uh, we have to really tip our hats to the uh, people at Anchor Bay and Scream Factory, uh, division of Shout Factory, for making this possible. Uh, because this, this is an all-encompassing effort that required so many different companies to come on board. You had to get Universal on board. You had to get Miramax on board. You had to get Sony on board. The Weinstein Company. All of these people had to get on board because the Halloween franchise has kind of floated around and, and gone to all these different places. This is the first time that you get every single one of these films all together in one box set. It includes Halloween, Halloween 2. Are you really going to name all of them? Halloween 3, 4, 5. Uh, then Halloween, the Curse of Michael Myers. Halloween H2O. Remember H2O? Halloween Resurrection, and then the two new ones that, uh, that you know, the, the, the new Halloween and the new Halloween 2. So, uh, this is pretty much everything. And a bunch of these are unrated. You know, John Carpenter's Halloween also has an unrated version. The Halloween 2 has an R and an unrated version. Same from Curse of Michael Myers. Uh, and then you get unrated uh, director's cuts for the two more recent films from 2007, 2009, Halloween and Halloween 2. And tons of special features. It's just there's no point in even going into all the special features. They've got uh, uh, just featurettes and documentaries and still galleries and trailers and interviews and old interviews and new interviews, audio commentaries. It's just it's completely out of control. And uh, point, it, it really it should be pointed out that the, uh, the, 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 uh, the cut of Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, which is present here, the unrated cut, is a producer's cut, which I've never heard of before. I know there are producers, but I've never heard anyone call it that, the producer's cut. So um, this is pretty terrific. This is, you know, 30 years of Halloween movies all piled into one Blu-ray box set. This is great. Oh, totally. Yep. And, and even though there are movies in here I have no interest in, I think this is great. This Absolutely. Is, it's just totally worth owning. Yep, it's a winner. Yep. Uh, speaking of a winner, we have a, a, a collection from Universal, which would be an incredible slam dunk winner if it was on Blu-ray. Well, Unfortunately, it, it is on Blu-ray, but it wasn't re-released in a special box set this season on Blu-ray. So the Blu-ray set has been around a little while, but this complete 30-film collection is kind of a new plug just well, for this, this Halloween. Well, this has everything. This has a bunch of Draculas, a bunch of these, these are all Universal horror films. Yeah. It's got a bunch of Wolfmans. It's also got uh, you know Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yep. Some of the parody films also has some of like the multi monster films, like Frankenstein yeah. meets the Wolfman, and it's got Phantom of the Opera. It's got a lot of great stuff in it. I mean, it doesn't have everything. It doesn't have the creature from the Black Lagoon. It doesn't have Revenge of the Creature. It's not on Blu-ray. There's no new added special features. Base. Uh, they're just really um, special features from other previous sets. Yeah. Um, so no, it, it, has, it has creature from the Black Lagoon. It does. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't have the. No, it does, not, doesn't uh, have the. the it not three D. It doesn't have three D no, version. Correct. Um, now three D creature from the Black Lagoon. That'd be cool. Anyway, so I have to say that this thing is incredibly comprehensive. And if see now, I have the Universal Creature Collection, but that's just really just like the big five. Yeah. It's Dracula. It's uh, Frankenstein. It's Bride of Frankenstein. It's Wolfman. Yep. But these. Are you, are you saying that uh, that this exact thing is on Blu-ray? Not entirely. They, 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 Universal has never decided what films they want to put into that box set, so they've they've mixed up and mixed and matched things a few different ways uh, over the years, and uh, so it's not a perfect mirror of the Blu-ray set, but it's it it you know the essentials are the same. If this was on Blu-ray, this would be a slam dunk must buy, or uh, we will disown you. Yeah. But it's on it's on DVD, but there's. 
30 films. It's unbelievably great. There's so many good films on this. This will. This is just like pretty much, except for the fact it's not on Blu-ray, it is the final word in Universal Classic Monster Films. So uh, there it is, Classic Monsters Complete 30 Film Collection. Fantabulous. Please be on Blu-ray. And uh, we're on our final stretch here before we fire into our interview with Ray. Uh, um, Mark's got some interesting stuff he's going to make mention of. I'm going to give you a quick uh, mention. If you don't want to do something real scary on Halloween, you've got some silly stuff that you could go with. You've got Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, a very boo Halloween. That's which, scary. That's scary. My goodness. What, what were they thinking? Duck Dynasty, Quacker Treat. Look at they put their faces in like jack o' lanterns. Isn't that funny? No, I don't. Ha- not. Who's going to watch Duck Dynasty on Halloween? Truly, come on. It, it, well, the show is pretty terrifying, and some uh, of their views whatever. are pretty terrifying too. Uh, for P- PBS Kids, a show that I'm learning to hate really relentlessly because it comes on every morning after Sesame Street. Dinosaur Train, Buddy's Halloween Adventure. I, you know, I guess if the kids are real little, I'm just getting so sick of Dinosaur Train. Every single time I hear Dinosaur Train, I want to just shoot myself. Um, and my daughter doesn't like it either. SpongeBob SquarePants Collection, the Scary Pants Collection. SpongeBob Scary Pants. Oh, as if it's not scary enough. This is a Halloween two-pack uh, of uh, Ghouls, Fools, and Halloween. It's, uh, you know, a bunch of just sort of uh, Halloween-ish, Halloween-somewhat-inspired uh, episodes. It's, you know, fair enough, again, for little kids. And then, uh, I thought this was terrific. Uh, Disney and Pixar, Toy Story of Terror. Uh, which comes along with uh, three additional Toy Story uh, shorts. And uh, it's not bad, you know? I mean, for the, as far as uh, adding a, a little, you know, kind of semi-short, this thing's only 22 minutes long, f- to the whole Toy Story legacy, I, I thought it was terrific. So, I mean, this is, a, this is a wonderful new little expansion of the story, Toy Story universe. It's not terribly long, and uh, it's good for the kids. And it has a few extras on it, too, like, you know, vintage toy commercials and uh, an audio commentary and stuff like that. So that is the uh, Blu-ray copy of the uh, Toy Story of Terror. All right, Wade, uh, we'll get to Ray Green right after we talk about these two, right? No, we got a bunch of Blu-ray stuff to blow through. Uh, Do it now. I will. Talk about those. Uh, Okay. I want to get to Ray. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Blu-ray. This is uh, the 40th anniversary collection. This is pretty much the last word on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's very funny because it's a 4K scan of a 16-millimeter film. So it's not like the 4K scan is going to uh, you know, make this thing look like Avatar, but uh, they, did, they did do a very good job with it considering the source material is 16-millimeter film. So uh, it's great. And now there's uh, so many extras on this thing. There's four audio commentaries. Um, there's, you know... There's featurettes about, uh, you know, the, 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 there's blooper reels and there's outtakes and there's stuff about where they shot the movie and there's stuff about how they did the effects. And it's just great. I mean, if you love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I hate to say this because we, we, you know how much we hate double, triple, quadruple dips. But um, if you're going to do it and you like this film, this would be the one. 4K scan and uh, 7.1 audio. Again, 7.1 audio. Sounds great. Again, you know, it's a bit of an overkill considering, but uh, still, they did a great job on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 40th Anniversary Collection. And then finally, I have the Vincent Price Collection 2. Now, this one uh, contains uh, The Raven. He was very fa- uh, Vincent Price, very famous for The Raven. Comedy of Terrors, Tomb of Ligeia, which I had never seen. House on Haunted Hill, one of his um, classics. Return of the Fly. 
Dr. Phoebe's Rises Again, not as good as the original, and Last Man on Earth, which of course wound up being remade a couple times, once as uh, the Omega Man and the other time as the, uh, with, the, with the Will Smith film. Um, if you love Vincent Price, this is great stuff, which is to say, buy it for your parents, because otherwise a lot of these films don't really hold up. Uh, but there you go, Vincent Price Collection 2. All right, and uh, piling through this last line of Blu-rays here, we got a really interesting uh, Colombian horror film. This is in Spanish, but definitely worth checking out. Uh, this is called The Squad. The director of this thing, Jaime Osorio Marquez, is going to definitely, he's going to be big. Watch out. Uh, the idea here is that a uh, military crew goes up into the, uh, in the mountains. They think they've got, they're going after some terrorists, and they find this mute woman who's locked up in chains, and everybody else is dead. And, uh, you know, who killed him? What's the secret of the woman? It's, it, it, it's, it's solid. I got to tell you, we've seen stuff like this before in that genre, but it's solid. Uh, Necromantic from Cult Epics is just really nasty. This, is, uh, this originally was made in 1987. This film was banned in a few places. And uh, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's as scary as it is nasty. It's only an hour and 15 minutes long. And there are two different versions of it on here. The original um, uh, director's cut, which was taken from its, its Super 8mm negative. There are no Super 8mm negatives. The Super 8 is, 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 is a positive format. Why did they even say that? And then uh, also a, uh, a, you know, a high-def version that was uh, taken from the 35mm print. So it's, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Necromantic, it's a super underground film from the late 80s. Uh, not particularly scary, just kind of nasty. And, you know, with good cause. Uh, the uh, Anything Bad Can Happen from Draft House is also really solid. And I, I don't know if this is quite so scary as it is disturbing. Uh, this is from a German director who uh, won uh, the uh, New Otero Award at the AFI Fest in 2013 for this. And um, this also had a spot somewhere at the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival that year. But um, this also is a, is a very interesting film. It's about a... Um, it kind of it's it's sort of uh, it, I don't know if I'd call this a horror film as much as kind of a psychological disturbed film. Anyway, it all kind of evolves from this Christian punk movement, this underground Christian punk punk thing, and uh, the psychological ramifications on on these kids as it as it uh, devolves from that. Uh, it's worth checking out. Uh, kind of more of an intellectual uh, Halloween thing. Uh, Boris Kar- Boris Karloff in uh, Cauldron of Blood. This is from uh, Olive Films. This is a, a, another one of these weird cult films that uh, Boris Karloff made in the late 60s that, you know, when he was doing stuff for Corman and everybody else and just trying to keep his career going. And, man, this is a, just a weird, funky 60s uh, trip. It is utterly bizarre. Jean-Pierre Aumont, who was in uh, Truffaut's Day for Night, is, uh, is in this as well, plays a photographer. And... Uh, the whole thing is just 60s groove. If you want like a real retro horror film, that's a good one to watch. Uh, Disaster LA, The Last Zombie Apocalypse begins here. I gave this, the, I, I looked at this, I thought, honestly, really? Another zombie movie set in LA? Um, you know, I'll tell you this. I don't know if it's any good or not, but I watched enough of it to know that the effects are surprisingly good. They did a really good job with the effects. Uh, Stage Fright uh, by Michel Suave. This is from Blue Underground. This is also something of a cult movie. Uh, has had a following for many, many years. 
and uh, I can't say that I think it's all that good. I'm I'm not entirely that familiar with uh, Michel Suave. I've I've done a good job of avoiding Rico Suave. No, I've done a good job of avoiding uh, all previous films by Michel Suave. I don't even it, it just it. You know, it's it's giallo stuff. I mean, it is what it is. So uh, this is on Blu-ray from Blue Underground. If you want to want to give that a shot, if that means anything, go for that. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. This is the 30th anniversary edition. And if you want to kind of tie your uh, your your Halloween to Christmas, uh, go ahead and give it a little nostalgic, you know, deal. This is. You know, there were a bunch of these kind of horrific films about, you know, Santa Clauses that murder people, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and uh, what, what are the other ones? What was the, 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 Bob, um, the Bob Clark directed one? Christmas Story. No, no. Before he made Christmas Story, he made the other murderous Santa Claus movie. Uh, uh, Santa Claus uh, uh, versus the Monsters. Anyway, I, they all blend together. Uh, the Ford Brothers are kind of making a name for themselves. They just made another zombie movie, The Dead 2. This is also on Blu-ray. Uh, perfectly capable. It's you know whatever, go for it. Uh, it's it's another zombie apocalypse movie, and we're you know there's a million of these. I don't know if any of them are going to Black really... Christmas. Thank you, Black Christmas. World War Z kind of you know. Both. I like World War Z. It, it's fine, but it's created now. Everybody wants to make zombie apocalypse movies. Damn right, they're cool. The Battery, another zombie movie. The Battery's in more interesting though. It doesn't try to be a zombie apocalypse movie. This just kind of harks back to uh, you know. Night of the Living Dead is what it's doing. This is a couple of a couple of baseball players in uh, roaming around this some wilderness part of New England, and uh, they take a wrong turn. Man, just that's not where you want to go. You know, whatever. It, it tries to it tries to be a little more hip and a little more modern, but still, it's a it's a it's a zombie movie and it's over the top. But who cares? Uh, then we've got uh, actually this one's much more interesting. Um, the Sacrament, which was produced by Eli Roth, is actually a much more serious film. Uh, T. West, or Ty West, if you pronounce it that way, who, who makes really some very good horror films and, and suspense films, um, did a very good job in The Sacrament. I think this is one of West's better efforts. And uh, I, I, it, he always deals with interesting themes. Always deals with interesting social themes and religious themes and you know psychological issues and I, I think this one's uh, this one's better than most of the other films of his that I've seen. So uh, the Sacrament is worth checking out. Uh, West previously made House of the Devil and something a couple of years ago, the title of which I've forgotten. And then let's see, uh, last year in my pile uh, are is uh, a more recent film and a couple of vintage films. The more recent film is Deliver Us from Evil. And they do the title so that it looks like evil is devil. Uh, this is also inspired by actual accounts of an NYPD sergeant who apparently uh, was on crack at the time that he was relating the accounts because there's just no, no conceivable way that this is in, based in any way on anything legit. Eric Bana and Edgar Ramirez, two very legit actors, star in this. And uh, Bana plays the uh, New York police officer, presumably the guy who told him this wacky story, who is looking into a whole series of uh, criminal events that are just a little bit strange. And uh, then suddenly shows up Edgar Ramirez, a priest who's got answers he doesn't want to hear. And, you know, it, uh, it, it's, it's serviceable. Uh, Scott Derrickson, uh, the director of these films, has done a lot of this stuff. This is certainly uh, a respectable budget. I think it loses a, a little bit of steam at the end, but it's, it's okay. Deliver us from evil. 
And uh, the last of my two here, Squirm and Nightbreed, the director's cut. Uh, Squirm is in a collector's edition Blu-ray, and Nightbreed, uh, the director's cut, is in a Blu-ray DVD combo. These are both from Scream Factory, and uh, these are both vintage uh, horror cult classics that are really not all that scary or that horrifying anymore, but if you saw them when they first came out, uh, you, you know, you're going to have a certain nostalgic connection to them. Uh, so, you know, go for it. Uh, the uh, Nightbreed was, is from 1990, and uh, Squirm is from way back in 1976. They come from two very, very different eras, but, uh, it, it, you know, there's a lot of extras on here, a lot of uh, spe cool special features, and they really do kind of try to suggest that these films inspired other films. Uh, Nightbreed, I think, is probably the more, um, the more imaginative film. Uh, so, you know, take it for what you will. Grab these, put them on, spook people. Have a great Halloween. Mark, what do you got? Uh, I have, what do I have? I have Aftermath. Aftermath has a and has an okay cast featuring uh, Edward Furlong and uh, Monica Kina. This is a uh, this movie is uh, it's actually not that bad. It's about a bunch of uh, guys, about half a dozen half a dozen of them, and the apocalypse is upon us, and they're living in a uh, farmhouse in a cellar. And as the fallout comes, they you know they survive. You know they have dwindling supplies, and the air is becoming more poisonous, and of course zombies are freaking out and and drifting all over the place. So. This is more of an atmospheric kind of a thing as they kind of try to, you know, wrap their minds around the inevitable. And uh, so it definitely has some stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's pretty atmospheric. Um, it can be a little bit slow since, you know, you're sort of like waiting for the zombies to come and people are kind of waiting to die. But uh, I thought it had more style than a lot of these movies have. Again, it is uh, called Aftermath. It is a pretty well shot. And uh, Peter Engert, who uh, directed it, I, I can see him doing higher end, uh, you know, horror type stuff. I can't see him doing like Godzilla three, but I can see him doing um, uh, higher end stuff. This is pretty realistic for what it is. All right. And notice how I say for what it is. Uh, the Devil's Business is a pretty uh, it's a pretty good movie actually. I kind of like the Devil's more, Business more the hazmat mask. Huh. I, 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 did not, uh, I did not. Uh, I did not. I did not see that. Unbelievable. Anyway, the possession of. Uh, oh no! Sorry, the devil's business. The devil's business about these two uh, hitmen, and they are sent to uh, uh, murder um, this uh, this old associate of their boss. But of course, uh, there's a whole lot of black magic that happens, and a sacrifice, and things are not as they seem in uh, Sean Hogan's film. I, I thought this thing was not really all that uh, great. Uh, I didn't find it uh, very original or very scary. Uh, I'm not really a big fan of occult films with like black magic and uh, you know and snakes and uh, voodoo and whatnot. Um, performances are pretty good, but ultimately this is not really my cup of meat. The Devil's Business. Uh, we also have the Legend of Hell House. Now the Legend of Hell House is uh, from 1973. It's kind of a classic. It's about. Um, it's based on the novel. Um, it's about these uh, guys, these people, there's four of them, and they spend the weekend in a haunted house uh, because they are there to disprove uh, the existence of ghosts. And Roddy McDowell is in it, and um, it is based on the Richard Matheson novel. Richard Matheson, of course, was responsible for many great uh, short stories, novels, Twilight Zone episodes. Holy cow. Legend of Hell House is not his uh, greatest achievement, but it is Richard Matheson, so you might want to see it just for that. Uh, there you go. Finally, The Possession of Michael King. Uh, this is kind of an interesting movie. It's about um, this guy who does not believe in God, and then his uh, wife dies, and so he decides to make his next, next documentary film about 
whether there is a god or whether the supernatural exists. So I definitely like the setup. I don't know that the setup definitely the setup is not as provocative as the the movie, um, but it is kind of scary and it is pretty well shot. And again, it does have an interesting setup. So based on that, I would probably give the possession of Michael King a bit of a uh, bit of a pass. So there you go. I think I forgot to mention Night Nightbreed Clive Barker. Did I mention that that it's a Clive Barker movie? I, think uh, I forgot to mention that. I'm, I'm going I'm to assume you screwed up. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, question: what, What's Clive Barker doing? The guy's uh, done. He was like a big deal in the '90s for ten seconds, and then uh, after after Nightbreed and Hellraiser and that other thing that he did, the thing that the serpent and the oh, rainbow. the serpent and the rainbow. Yeah, which is actually probably his scariest movie. Frankly, he's done nothing. Uh, he's he gone not. away. I, I, there's no reason why he can't. All that uh, like kind of psychosexual, homoerotic S and M. Although he does have uh, a new, he has a new novel out. Oh, does he? Yes, he does. Yeah, well, so, uh, but what I, do I, know? I, I don't know why he was gone for most of the aughts. All right. And now we are going to launch into my evening with uh, Ray Green and his class at LMU talking about his documentary, Vampira and Me. Don't think you know anything about Vampira. You really don't. Vampira, fascinating story. The actress behind Vampira, Myla Nermi. Uh, this this is a an unbelievable documentary that Ray put his heart and soul into for at least two years. It was like two or three years that he worked on this, and uh, a lot of great extras on here. Ray did some amazing stuff, and the, the, Mila's story is really really gut wrenching. And you know, she this is a woman who created an iconic figure that was uh, inspired a little bit by um, uh, Morticia Adams. And then was, of course, stolen by, you know, Elvira. And, and the story of Myla's life, which is detailed in this, and how it sort of reflects on Hollywood and, and uh, how it kind of dovetails into all other kind of uh, social concepts, um, is really remarkable. It's a, it's a commentary on fame. It's a commentary on celebrity. It's a commentary on creativity. It's a, it's a lot of great things, all in a very, very personal uh, way. And I highly recommend that, you, even though this, we're biased all to hell, uh, Vampire and Me is a really terrific documentary. Mark? Oh, I agree. Yeah. And the thing is that it, it, it sheds a light on a, a little hidden dark corner of Hollywood history yeah. that not only do people not know about, but Ray also manages to sort of broaden it out thematically. Where you, when, once you get into who she was in Hollywood history, the friends that she had, you realize that this woman had an amazing life and she really did earn her place, her little tiny little Despite place. Despite all the suffering that in she Hollywood went history. through. In Hollywood history. That's yeah. right. All right. With that, now here is my, uh, my evening with Ray Green and his LMU class. All right. Well, this is, uh, this is an interview with Ray Green for his documentary, which is now on DVD, uh, which, of course, is what our podcast is all about, uh, Vampire and Me. And uh, this is part of, for the benefit of the class, this is part of the IGN Digigods podcast at digigods.com which we've been doing for far too many years. But uh, I thought this would be a great opportunity. You're screening the film for your class. It's on DVD. It's something we wanted to tout for, uh, for Halloween. Very appropriate coming up. So uh, my first question is going to be, because I was there kind of when the germ of this was, was stewing, when we were making schlock. And um, I want you to talk about how, what the, the genesis of this film growing out of schlock was. Mila obviously was one of the interview subjects in schlock, but this suddenly zeroes in on, on one person who was a small part of a, of a different story, and it became its own story. So talk a little bit about how the one became the other. Well, uh, one thing is that uh, schlock, the earlier documentary that Mila was in for about four minutes, um, what, sh- that was used as an 
opportunity since we had the crew, we had the gear. This was back in the days when it was expensive to shoot interviews because you couldn't just turn on a drive and let things run for hours, you know. And um, so Milo's interview was actually, Schlock was used as an excuse to get her story down on camera with her consent. Since the crew was in place and everything was there, I knew I could sort of put her into the movie, but if you watch the film, since Schlock doesn't deal with Ed Wood at all, because Schlock is about the exploitation, the impact of exploitation cinema, and Ed Wood had no impact until many, many years later. Um, so Ed Wood's not in the movie at all. Myla is is a prologue. She's literally listed with a title card as the prologue to that film. She doesn't isn't even really a part of that film. Um, but it was a good opportunity to use the fact that we had all these people in place to get the interview that Myla and I had talked about getting for a long time. And we, of course, had done a bunch of interviews and conversations that weren't recorded but were sort of remembered and so forth down the years, over lunch usually. Um, but the actual specific genesis of this movie it is in two stages. One is that I went to Myla's funeral in 2008, and, um, uh, you know, obviously it was a very sad occasion, it was a very wonderful occasion, and um, it just broke me up that I had never... You know, Milo was very difficult, and you worried that you were going to lose her as a friend if you did the wrong thing. And we had already had this weird interaction when I tried to make a present of a screening of Ed Wood to her in advance of the, the Tim Burton film coming out because I had contacts at Disney. Um, and as a result, I, I kind of stepped aside from coming up to Mila and saying, you know, why don't we do this movie? Why don't we tell your story? Because I, I was, A, a coward. I was afraid of losing her friendship. And B, she was very adamant that she was going to tell her story someday. And you sort of felt like Milo would get there, you know, because she was that kind of person in her own weird way. And then time went on and we drifted apart. I broke my leg in Russia, which is a, a, an elaborate story. Uh, came back here, went, went to Singapore and did a project in Singapore. And Mila never had a phone and she moved several times. And we, we just lost touch and drifted. And then all of a sudden she was dead. You never thought she was going to die either. But that wasn't when I took the decision to tell her story. Um, 2000, oh, I can never remember. I think it was 10. might have been 2009. Uh, the British Film Institute contacted me and said that they wanted to use Schlock for the keynote screening in their exploitation and sexploitation cinema season and that they would fly me over to London for the, for the screening. And, you know, of course, I thought, wow, that's great. It had never, it was its European premiere, as it turns out. It had never played there. Uh, and so I went over there, and, you know, I had a glass of wine, and I was on the bank in the Thames, and it was amazing. It was great. I ran into Terry Gilliam in the lobby, you know. Um, and I was having a wonderful evening, and then I sat down in the theater with some friends, European friends, who I had brought to the screening. And the movie came on, and boom, there was Myla. Because she's the prologue. She's the first thing in the movie. And I, I just teared up immediately. There, not only there was Myla, but there was my voice asking her questions. There was the two of us laughing. There was Myla exactly as I remembered her. Because, of course, the interview in the movie is just one of our conversations, you know. And I hadn't looked at that footage. I hadn't watched the movie in a long time. I couldn't bring myself to look at the footage after she died. And I watched it and... After those four or five minutes of her in the movie were over, I just almost said it out loud. You got to do this. You're going to have to do this. You, you, you just, you've got to do it. You've got to suck it up, sit down, look at the footage and make a movie.
long answer, but there you go. That's no. why they invented the editing scale. That's right. It's a great answer. And and uh, given that answer, I think a lot of people might look at the film, look at the title, and think that this is kind of a personal memoir about your recollection of her. But you have a very different take on the title. The title has a very specific, and I don't want to. I don't want to push too much on this because I know no, you. Okay. Well, go. But talk a little bit philosophically about how the title is to be interpreted. Well, and of course, my take on the title is the only correct one since I titled the movie. <laughs> uh, uh, guys, who's the me in Vampire and Me? Is it me sitting here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anybody have any other guesses? I thought it was me. Okay, that's not. That would not be another guess then. Okay. Back there. It's Myla. In fact, there's pictures at the front, Vampira and me. But, of course, you haven't met Myla yet. Yeah, uh, the me in this story is Myla. Um, that duality that the movie talks about was real. Um, Myla talked about Vampire in the third person. She talked about Vampire like Vampire existed. In fact, the movie ends with her saying, "It's she's my child. You know? I mean, uh, and Vampira... One of Mar- Myla's biggest problems was that uh, it's it splintered her psyche. I think stardom does that to people. Um, I mean, you know, well, you saw the. It's even in the movie. You know, the Mel Gibson cover, the interview that I did with him in box office. I mean, I knew he was crazy before he did. You know, um, there's something very, very warping about that kind of attention. And then when you take a person like Myla, who really did stand in opposition to many of the the received wisdoms about the way women were supposed to be in her time, um, you know, Vampira became extremely important to her as another place to stand, you know, because Milo wasn't strong. You hear her say in the movie, uh, you know, well, I have low self-esteem, you know, says it directly in answer to a question. Vampira didn't have low self-esteem. Nobody could hurt Vampira's feelings. Vampira would just bite your head off. She could orgasm without reference to a man. You know, she was completely self-contained. And because that character represented and idealized her, and because that character gave her a place to essentially attack and parody brutally and ruthlessly the way that women were perceived back in that time, she had extreme importance to Myla, to the point where Myla was willing to suffer for the sake of the character. And another thing she says directly in the movie, you know, uh, uh, she would not have given it up, even knowing how her story was going to play out. What the character gave her was too important. She would have suffered it for the character. So um, to me, that was the, it just was the ideal title, um, that there there are two people inside of this one person. And interestingly enough, I, I subsequently discovered that Groucho Marx's memoirs were called Groucho and Me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been done, like everything in Hollywood. Uh, now you you touched on something that was that also dovetails into another one of my questions, which is one of the things that I think this reconfirms that we all know, and yet this room and every room of film students that has ever been and continues to be uh, seems to understand that and yet perpetuates it, which is this masochistic attachment to a business that has a history of just beating people up, of chewing them up and spitting them out and leaving a trail of broken dreams uh, 10,000 times as wide as the little trickle of fulfilled dreams. The odds against success in this industry are astronomical. And celebrity 
for all the we never had conversations like this until Ab dropped his over. <laughs> celebrity for all of the glamour that we paste on it, all the magazine covers that we see, really is a corrosive factor in the lives of almost everyone who attains it. I mean, there is no one who attains celebrity who goes on to say, boy, those were the best years of my life. At some point, all of them say, it ruined my life. Whether you wind up poor, whether you wind up rich, whether, whether, whatever it is, it, it, people always wind up somehow damaged from the acquisition of celebrity. And Mila seems to crystallize all of, all of those milestones that every everyone else seems to hit. It's almost like she took the hard road. Everybody else was it would hit, you know, maybe one or five or ten. She hit them all. And uh, talk about... And some new ones. And some new ones. So talk a little bit about that. Because the, because the new ones that she hit were the, the odd twist ending to her story, which is that she became famous again. Yeah. Uh, that, w- that, you know, her own belief that what she did was important was validated by the universe after 30 years of suffering, you know. Well, you know, I don't know that George Clooney would agree with you that everybody's damaged by fame. I don't, yeah, well, you know, he seems to be having a good time. He's pretty old. It's, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things you can say about celebrity. If, if you're somebody who wants to do projects, celebrity's a lubricant. Mel Gibson never would have directed, crazy as he turned out to be, he never would have d- directed a best picture if he wasn't famous first, right? Um, you know... I think the business inherently attracts narcissists. It attracts people who want the world to tell them they're wonderful, so it attracts people who are wounded, and that it can magnify and distort people based on that. Um, I think that Mila's trajectory also needs to be recognized as something else, though, which is that she, you know, if she was an artist, if she if she painted rather than, you know, walking around with a 17-inch waist... Uh, in a low-cut dress, which, by the way, in case you didn't notice, every time she appeared on network TV was not a low-cut dress because she was too hot for the mainstream back then. You see the clips in the movie from NBC. She's got always got a camisole. Um, you know, if she painted stuff, then everybody would recognize this story. She's an artist who refused to let people take away from her what she created, and she'd be a hero. But I've had people say to me, you know, I just found her so frustrating. Why wouldn't she just let them cut the check and give them to... Because it, it's not what it was about for her. It was never th- about that for her. She never made any money off the character. She broke even on the goddamn character, even when the character was famous. She spent it all on taxi cabs and, and body makeup, and she took home about 50, 54 bucks after taxes. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, it was about articulating something important to her. It was about saying, you know, to that that big American uh, dream of her time that basically was a a man will build a a gauzy little world for you and you'll pop out a kid every nine months and serve him a martini and that's your entire life. That it was a prison and she didn't want to be a part of it and she was willing to walk across the psychological equivalent of hot coals for most of her life to make that statement and to avoid what she saw as an, an empty life. Uh, I know the, the, the documentaries like this are very often shortchanged by the people who don't make films. They look at it and they think, well, you know, easy enough. You go and you dig up a lot of archival footage from various libraries and, you know, get it all together and shoot it in there and interview a few people and you have a movie. Uh, I know for a fact that you, this was, a, there was a lot of detective work that went on here. Um, you made history finding material 
that was lost. And uh, this is, uh, so I, I want you to talk a little bit about that process as well. I mean, the, the, the tools, the, the materials with which to compile this film were not there when you began making this film. And you basically had to do a lot of the heavy lifting of putting that material together, being an archivist, being a curator, doing all of the stuff that normally uh, on a documentary like this, if it were for the History Channel or for one of those television, is already there. It's already done. So talk a little bit about that, too. Well, I, I, love, I love doing archival work. Um, I, I, I often think of uh, this quote attributed to Voltaire, who said that history is a bunch of tricks we play in the dead, right? Um, pop culture is a bunch of tricks we play in the dead as well. Um, you know, there's a certain narrative that emerges over time about what was important, uh, and it boils down to a list that the AFI can put out, and it, it, doesn't, it tells us almost nothing about what people were actually thinking and doing with their lives. Um, and you know that because you worked on Schlock. Schlock argues, I think persuasively, that the, the reviled sexploitation cinema of the 50s and 60s says a lot more about who Americans were, and especially about who American men were, than all that sanitized, blow-dried, Rock Hudson Doris Day fluff that was is is celebrated as you know. Oh, Pillow Talk is a great representative of you know whatever. Um, so I think you have to dig deep into the archive to to try to show people that you know there's stuff that's they've been deprived of that speaks about who we were and therefore how we became who we are, right? Um, in the case of Vampire and Me, we, were, we we got very lucky that we were able to discover a couple of kinescopes that hadn't been seen since n 1954 and 1955, especially, I think, the George Goebel one, which is by far the most interesting of the two kinescopes, um, where Myla is on this top ten show. I mean, you know, the rap on her is that the vampire character had such limited impact, but in fact... You, you've got to look up the number of people who are watching on a night like that on the George Goebel show. It's in the tens of millions of people that saw her star on that show that night. This is a huge alteration of what she actually accomplished and what her cultural impact was in the moment, you know? Um, so we were, we were very fortunate to find that stuff. I was very, very pleased and in some ways very moved to find that stuff because Mila's later life was a quest to, to prove to people that she had actually done what she did. When it comes to the, um, the fact that there's a, a lot of other material in the film, uh, a lot of it dealing with the way that women were depicted in the time, I would say, first of all, um, I, I would openly acknowledge that I was inspired to that technique by my deep love of a film that's called The Atomic Cafe, a wonderful documentary that I think everybody should see about the nuclear program and the nuclear history of America back in the 50s that relied entirely on government films to make its point. Um, it, it's certainly the lack of footage of Empire dictated to a, great, to a certain extent how the film played out. But I also chose to use that footage, and there are literally hundreds of those films in the movie. This isn't a typical, you know, oh, we've already got an archive kind of a thing. I mean, I combed through probably a thousand titles to find that footage. Fortunately, I like doing that. Um, but I wanted to embed Myla and Vampyra in her cultural moment so that you could see how unique what she was doing was related to, in, in terms of the relationship to other depictions of women from the time. Um, and uh, fortunately, a lot of that stuff, Myla, Myla hits the, the, the archival sweet spot because she's, Vampyra's on the air 
worked in the period where they're still not copywriting television programs and when advertising films haven't quite evolved fully into commercials. And so there's all this kind of beautifully shot footage of women from the time that can be used to embed Myla in her, her social era and her social predicament. Um, one thing that I, I, I'm going to mention for the, since we we're here in front of my class because uh, I got asked this question a couple times by interviewers. There's a commercial in the middle of the movie, guys. Did you notice the commercial about the, the cold cream? Yeah? Did you, did you understand what was happening in that commercial? No, they put, they put radiation on the model, and then they used cold cream to clean it off. And the least radioactive model showed you which cold cream, cream cleaned the deepest. That's an actual commercial from the 1950s. And I think that tells you so much about the way that women were viewed in the period. I mean, it's almost, you couldn't do that on Saturday Night Live and get people to think it was anything but an exaggerated, ridiculous joke, you know? So, so the, the archives are full of really great stuff. And I think, um, you know, it was important, very important to me that Myla be shown within the general cultural picture of her time. So you didn't have... Sure, sure. One, one other thing I wanted to bring up. And, and so you didn't have an army of archivists and researchers like uh, Ken Burns does? Oh, man. Um, no, no, wait, I, okay, so I do want to say this. When I made Schlock, I've made two of these archival monsters and a couple of radio ones, too, where I'm the entire crew, basically, right? Uh, and when I made my film Schlock, which was 10 years before I made this one, I actually said to a friend of mine, you know, because I was so wiped out by it financially and emotionally and in terms of stamina, and I said to a friend of mine named Larry Herbst, who actually worked on this film a little bit, uh, helped me shoot some stuff, that I was never going to make another documentary by rubbing two sticks together again. And then I made this movie and basically rubbed two sticks together, you know, made it all by myself, Final Cut Pro, did all the research myself, I did all the upscaling of the footage myself to make it all high def. I color corrected it. I did everything on this movie. The only thing I didn't do was the final m mixing of the tracks, which I also cut. Uh, and Larry uh, came to me when he saw the movie, and he said, Ray, you, you told me you were never going to make a movie again by rubbing two sticks together. And I, I just said, you know, Larry, they just kept making better and better sticks. The computers got faster. You could find stuff so much easier with the internet. This is a much more visually elaborate film than Schlock. It was still arduous to do, but Schlock took me three and a half years to do. This took me two. It took me just under two for its premiere at the LA Film Festival, but it wasn't quite done then, you know. So, um, you know, yeah, I'm no hero for doing it by myself. I'm just, I'm just a guy I can afford, you know. Uh, before we open it up to, to the class, I, I, it's interesting because my, uh, my wife, who always seems to be prescient about these things, uh, she was reading uh, some stuff to me this morning about Thelma Todd. Yeah. And um, a fascinating quote, and I kind of ruined the setup here, but she says, who do, who, who, uh, who do you think said this? And she read me this quote uh, that says, you know, I know there's always a younger actress who's prettier and so forth coming up behind me, so I intend to stay in the game. I'm going to age gracefully. I'm going to embrace those wrinkles and so forth and so on. And she says, who do you think said that? And I thought, well, it's going to be somebody older. I, I, Shelley Winters. And I obviously didn't go back far enough. Thelma Todd, all the way to the silent era. And it's amazing how that stays the same. How the, you know, if, you, if we look five years ago who the hot, hot young actresses were, they're old, they're done. 
and five years from now, we're going to be looking, you know, at all the actresses today, and we're going to be saying, oh, what, where'd they go? What happened to them? And uh, Myla seems to, the struggle that she faced in 1954 seems to define very much the struggle that women in Hollywood still face. The gender aspect of that. I know it's a huge topic, topic, so answer it as quickly as you can, then we'll open it up to class. Okay, well, there's, of course, there's a lot to say on that. Um, The odd thing about Myla is that she was pushing 30 or just over 30 when she hit it as Vampira. She had already lived that entire trajectory as an an unknown starlet that you could see sitting at tables in the back of Robert Mitchum movies and stuff when she was under contract to Howard Hawks, the great director of so many classic Hollywood movies, who Myla loathed, by the way. (laughs) Um, So she's odd in that sense. Um, I can just say I can remember being in a meeting uh, on a screenplay of mine that was nearly produced, and uh, at the time I think Juliette Lewis was maybe 21 or maybe 20, and um, we were talking about a particular part, and I said, uh, you know, well, I, I think she's a wonderful actress. Why don't we consider Juliette Lewis? And in unison, practically, at the table, they went, she's over. And I was like, Are you got to be kidding me, you know. She's 20 years old. I mean, we've all seen the movie where, you know, Clint Eastwood or Woody Allen sidles up to some, the babe of the moment, you know, uh, and um, it's appalling and ridiculous, and it doesn't happen in real life unless you live in Hollywood. And uh, and if you do, um, it's not Emma Stone that you curl up next to, you know, uh, so that's a disgrace. However, I think the real struggle for women in Hollywood is uh, a, a struggle to, you know, um, Booker T. Washington, one of the great liberators of African Americans in the United States, used to tell the story about casting down your bucket where you are. In other words, build it where you stand because they're not going to bring it to you. And I think that's what women have to do. They've got to seize control of the means of production. They've got to look at people like Lena Dunham, product of independent film, who's, who's really broken through and admire her for the way that she did it and follow her path because there are so many obstacles that are erected by the institutional sexism of the system of Hollywood, and they stand in the way of women, no matter what they're trying to achieve here. And um, certainly Milo was a victim of that, but that victimization is with us. All right, so, class, any questions for your professor on his movie? Come on. Or did anybody... Did, did anyone see Milo as heroic or anything? Did you, th- did you find Milo sympathetic? Um, I just feel like she, this is just another case of an actor or actress getting telecasted. Extremely telecasted. And you mean typecasted? Typecasted, I'm sorry, typecasted. So far that after this show ran its course, it just became so hard for her to find more work, such that say Joey and Friends he I haven't seen him in anything I know he's trying to come out with another show it bombed of course I just think it's just getting typecast Adam West has been Batman for 50 years and he can't and that's it that's who he is to, to be fair to Hollywood there's a certain certain truth in that to be fair to Hollywood uh, Milo really did hide from the world um, for a while uh, you know, I think the, the the loss of her fame, the loss of James Dean, and uh, a whole bunch of tragedy. You know, um, if you actually stop and do the math, the amount of loss that she suffered right around the corner from fame is unimaginable. It's all within about 15 months that she goes through two shows, 
She's canceled because they're trying to steal Vampira. She loses her friendship with James Dean. She loses James Dean himself. Um, she uh, is uh, attacked and almost killed uh, when she relocates to New York to try to forget what's going on in Hollywood and to get away from... She actually told me her memories of James Dean. She couldn't... Every street corner she saw him, so she went to New York, and then she's almost attacked and killed. Comes back and gets her show canceled for a second time. This is all within 15 months. And uh, I, th I think, you know, anybody might, might need a timeout for that, but boy, you better not get a timeout in Hollywood. But the other thing to be said uh, about what happened to Myla is, you know, I looked at the contracts. KBC really did stop her from performing Vampira until the, the craze was over. They held her to her contract. They kept giving her her 50 bucks a week or something, you know, but they wouldn't let her perform the character until her contract was up. Because even though she, she essentially owned the character, she basically didn't own the right to put the character on TV until that contract was over. That belonged to KBC. So they, you know, her career was, was actively killed, one could argue, rather than it just sort of sputtering out. By the time she came back, they wouldn't let her dress as Vampira. She had lots of problems with the writers on the show. They wouldn't let her do the character the same way. And her moment was over. So I think that was what happened, too. Um, where did you find all the footage that you um, that's a, that's a, an excellent question and, and so a good reason for you guys to have that press kit. And I put all the names of all the movies in there because those are all in the a lot of them are in the public domain, and you can use them in your movie. And I want you to. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, an archive that was actually created out of the uh, Atomic Cafe, a movie that I adore, um, uh, called the Prelinger Archive, is one of the most important archives of American, what we call ephemera, the films that are, were made for advertising purposes, newsreels, things like this. Absolutely one of the most important archives in the world. And the Prelinger archive, Rick Prelinger believes that since these movies are in the public domain, that the public should have use of them. He is absolutely alone in uh, not trying to squeeze every penny out of what he's accomplished by putting all these movies together. If you wish to use these movies, you can license them from him and get, uh, get access to these really nice masters he's made of a lot of them. Or you can go online to archive.org. You can look at any one of the movies in his archive. And if you'd like to use it, there are about n seven different levels of, uh, of uh, digitized you know, resolution for each one of these movies. And then what you've got to do is you can download it. Then you have to upscale it. You have to do a lot of stuff to make it look proper and presentable, all of which I had to do in this case. But a lot, not all, but I would say 50% of the ephemera films in the movie were gotten from the Prelinger archive. That's why they're heavily thanked in the credits. Um, the kinescopes of Vampira, I'm telling you, I got incredibly lucky. I want to pretend like I'm some super sleuth here. You know where I got the George Goebel kinescope, guys? eBay. I got it on eBay. It, just out of the blue, somebody found an NBC archive in the Midwest for a bunch of these kinescopes, and they started selling them on eBay. And uh, up pops, you know, Vampira. And the guy didn't understand the historical significance of what he had, and I certainly wasn't going to tell him. I was ready to bid ten grand for that. I would have bankrupted myself, basically, you know, given all the other expenses of the movie. I got it for far less than that, thank goodness. And... Um, 
Uh, the button to that story, by the way, is that when I screened the sh- this movie at uh, Monster Palooza last spring, no, I screened I screened excerpts from it and from the kinescope. A guy came up to me and he said, "I was the other guy on eBay. <laughs> I was trying to get the kinescope, and he would have buried it." He said, "I would have buried it and and I would have let little pieces of it out and tried to get money for it." And he told me his whole strategy, and then he said, "It went to the right guy. It, you were the guy who was supposed to get it." which I thought was kind of cool. And then here's the other funny thing. The, the game show, Kinescope. So I call up UCLA Archive, right? I have a friend, somebody who took this class, who I helped to become an archivist uh, uh, years ago. And I called her up and I said, you know, um, uh, where do you guys restore your movies? Because I want to do this right. I didn't even watch it until it was restored. Uh, I, the first time I saw it was watching it be put onto high depth because with a 16 millimeter print that's that old, it could turn into guitar picks when you put it through a film chain and um, so I called up UCLA and I said where do you guys do your film restoration called my friend said talk to this guy I called this guy up at UCLA archive and I'm being all hot shot you know oh it's the only known footage of Vampira on television you know uh, it's an important archival find the only known footage and the guy goes yeah yeah the only known footage of her on, on a TV broadcast except for that game show and I go game show what game show? And he goes, the game show. The game show we have in the archives. And I said, you don't have a game show in the archives. I looked at the archives. There's no game show listed there. And the guy literally goes, oh, I forgot to put that in the catalog. (laughs) He had seen it. He had actually transferred it and used it for a lecture. But it wasn't listed in a form where I could find it. If I had not reached that specific guy, I would have never found that. That's a great story. I didn't. I didn't know that you you bumped into the other guy that was bidding. Yeah, that was really weird. Because I was. I was. One of my questions was, if you had not won that auction, to what lengths would you have stalked the other person who would have won it? I mean, I, I, I would have tried, but you know, you yeah. have to stay within your budget. Yeah. I would have been broken on. But but you know, uh, well, okay. I'm, I should talk to the microphone. <laughs> the amount, but the amount that I was willing to bill, bid on it was insane, given my financial situation at the time. I had a new kid in the house and everything, you know. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I, want, I needed to get it for my life. So your emotion gets in there. They love that, by the way. That's, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what eBay wants. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I want to pretend I'm some big super sleuth, but the, uh, God's honest truth. eBay, I, I refer to it as the national uh, attic. You can find anything in that thing if you wait long enough. Yeah. Oh, I just had one last question. Um, so earlier you were saying, Well, gosh, that's a good question. I found out a lot um, that I didn't know. You know, Vampiro was a cult figure back then, but, you know, the Internet didn't exist. And um, so I suppose there's some factual questions I would want to ask her. I don't know. if I, I mean, if I think about Myla now, all these years later, I just want to go to lunch with her, you know. I just want to sit down with her and laugh with her because, you know, she was she was hilarious, by the way. Get a little bit of that in the movie. I mean, she was hilarious. Uh, uh, quick-witted, um, despite everything she'd been through, very alert, very alive, 
unbelievably for somebody who who bordered on being a recluse uh, right to the end of her days uh, you know really with it in terms of the pop culture references in terms of the you know if you if you're in the game of interviewing people like Wade and myself are um, you've we've all had the experience probably numerous times above a certain age threshold you go to a quote quote major star and when you talk to them you get the grand dame you know oh well in our day Hollywood was royalty you know and you just want to throw up into your shoes you know and when you met Mila it was nothing like that it was like your pal you know from down the street that you just didn't know you had um I suppose if I could ask Mila one thing, I would ask her why she put herself through it. I mean, just directly ask her why she put herself through it. What was the specific reward for that she got from it? Because I know it wasn't about money. Uh, something she said to me that wasn't in the movie was, you know, because she came up with all these people became famous. Tony Perkins was with her the day James Dean died, you know. Marlon Brando was her lover. Uh, James Dean, obviously, she had this tempestuous but extremely significant relationship with. And so many of them became famous, you know, and and wealthy beyond imagining. And Myla said to me at one point, you know, she said, uh, I, I don't envy any of those people their money. I envy them their electrified fences because I got the fame and I didn't get the money and you need the money to protect you from the fame. So I'll never understand why somebody would put themselves through all that. It's like putting your hand on a burning stove over, as Troy Duffy said earlier in the term, you know, it's like you keep putting your hand on a stove and burning it every time. Uh, what were some of her spiritual beliefs? Because you kind of mentioned briefly, but Mingo wasn't. Well, well, you got that she believes in reincarnation, right? She and James Dean were had met in several other lives and so forth. By the way, um, the bit where she talks about being an alien, you know, and her and James Dean being an alien, which I know sounds really weird, uh, was the one thing that when I was working on the movie always made me cry. Uh, when I when I watched, oh, and did you notice the part where Milo almost cried? Anybody notice that? Uh, there's a part where I say, should we take a break, Myla? She's about to burst into tears there. When she talked about, um, you know, she has low self-esteem and she went into reclusion. Uh, but when I watched the movie, uh, when I watched the footage, I hadn't seen it in years. I forgot all this stuff, you know. Um, when she talks about being an alien, she might have believed that literally. Uh, Dean did believe... It just, he had a real strong connection to the Little Prince, which Milo would know. That's why she said Jimmy was from another planet. He was the Little Prince. The Little Prince is from another planet in the Great Fable. Um, but the significant thing in that story, and the thing that always made me cry, is that Milo doesn't understand what she's saying about herself and about what she lost when she lost James Dean. Uh, when she starts talking about, you know, we recognized one another. Hi, Jimmy. You know, hi, stranger. I know how you feel. You can't find your planet. You can't find your planet. How alone is that? How alone is that? How lonely is that? You know? And I think she really did feel that way. Um, Mila was, as, as some of the beats from that period were, what we would now consider to be New Age. She had strong belief in the devil, 
she had strong belief in Christ, but they were sort of modified to fit her own um, uh, uh, belief in things like the fact that we keep going until we get it right, you know. Um, and um, I think, <laughs> I wish I could find this tape because I'm pretty sure she also told me that she flirted with kind of Anton LaVey-ish uh, Satanism. Um, not herself. She wasn't interested in it from the level of she hated Satan, saw Satan as the enemy and so forth. But um, Anton LaVey, the Satanist, is widely misunderstood. He was basically an Ayn Rand, Nietzschean, uh, you know, the, the self is all kind of a philosopher. And because of the vampire character, I think they sought her out. Uh, and she may have participated in some of the stuff when LaVey was, uh, was here in Los Angeles. But I can't remember. She had strong views on Scientology too, but it's just been too long. I can't remember what they were. But the truth is, what makes Myla's story unique is that the world came around. She knew that the, to, to her, what she achieved was indisputably important. She had doubts about the world's willing, you know, ability to perceive that she had accomplished something. She never had doubts in what she accomplished. And the weird, crazy, cockeyed, only in America, strange, compromised, happy ending to the story is that it took 30 years and more but the world came around. Mm -hmm. I mean, all there was was stills for most of that time, you know? And somehow the world wouldn't let it alone. It got through. And when Mila died, when Mila died, she was remembered. That's what she wanted most of all. But, I, you know, I, I'd like to go out with a little ray of light for these guys. Mm -hmm. Self-expression is wonderful. Having a conversation with the world is wonderful. It's worth making sacrifices for it. It's, it is, it is uh, you know, part of our reason for being here is to define our reason for being here. And, you know, yeah, sure, you've you got to wade through muck and you've got to, you know, there, there's, the, if, if you get in with the wrong company, you will be exposed to the lowest kind of betrayals and, and, and horrific behavior. But you know what? Every room has a door. You don't have to stay in that room. You don't have to... You know, if, if you guys, you know what, if you take nothing else away from this movie that we watched that I, thank you for letting me share it with you tonight. It is the example of somebody that however you have to do it, however, it would be nice to have someone else's money and a staff of people to do it. You can walk away from doing it that other way and you can do it a different way. You can find your own way to do it. Self-expression is great. Talking to the world is great. And you don't have to, you know, set up shop in a whorehouse to do it. <laughs> Great stuff, right? Oh yeah, you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. Ray is a uh, Ray is a uh, he he uh, he is as brilliant as he is, as he is a mensch. And we both guested in that class in the past, and that's always fun. So. All right, so with that, remember, we've got a couple of giveaways. Send us, uh, send us those emails to uh, godsatdigigods.com. Remember, you can't, uh, you can't try to get them both. We, you have to pick one of the two. So, uh, yeah, so send us an email either with misfire in the subject line or with autumn, A-U-T-U-M-N, in the subject line, name and address in the, in, the, in the body of the message, and we'll pick three people as long as we get your email uh, time and date stamped by October 24th. Have a great Halloween. Sweet. The tea. So get a witch's shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on. We're gonna pay a call on the Adams family.